So I'm thrilled to introduce uh, our uh, first uh, section lead or our first um, um, uh, speaker, who's Dr. Melanie Thompson, and she'll be joined by her panel faculty. Over to you, Dr. Thompson. Thank you so much, Raj. So I want to go ahead and share my screen here uh, so we can um, kick it off. Um, I really want to focus in this panel discussion on the new things that are in the guidelines. Um, and so I would refer you to the document itself for some of the bread and butter issues. Uh, and by the way, that document is available for free. You do not have to have a subscription to JAMA to uh, obtain the guidelines. So you can go to the JAMA website and download the full guidelines. So, so please do that. Um, and I also wanna say that this first session is gonna be a little different. It is going to be entirely case-based uh, without any lectures from me, uh, but we have a great group of experts who will weigh in and uh, there will be time for Q&A at the end. So please put your questions in the Q&A uh, section, not in the chat. So uh, here are my disclosures. They're also in the syllabus. And after attending this uh, presentation, we hope that you'll be able to make good decisions about when to start antiretrovirals in people who have cryptococcal or TB meningitis, uh, and also what to start in TB. Uh, to choose appropriate antiretroviral therapy for someone who has an H who has acquired HIV after exposure to PrEP agents like cabotegravir uh, or a tenofovir-based regimen, and to choose appropriate antiretrovirals for a person who is initiating therapy uh, while pregnant. So we're going to start today uh, with uh, a gentleman who has a headache. So this is Eric. He's a 28-year-old African-American man from Atlanta. He was diagnosed with HIV when he went to the ER with a cough that had been present for three weeks and a headache for two weeks and now fever to 102 degrees. On exam, he has no focal findings, head CT is negative. Uh, he has a right upper lobe infiltrate on his chest X-ray, but good oxygen saturation. CD4 count quite low at 22 and HIV RNA more than half a million. Uh, his serum cryptococcal antigen is negative, but his interferon gamma release assay is positive. And you see his LP results here and he does have a positive AFB on his smear. That doesn't always happen. Uh, but um, so the question here for him is, when do you wanna start treatment in a person who has TB meningitis? So go ahead and vote and I'll go through these options. Um, start antiretrovirals, TB treatment, and high-dose steroids on the day of the diagnosis of TB meningitis. Uh, start antiretrovirals within two weeks of beginning TB treatment and high-dose steroids. Uh, start within two to four weeks of beginning TB treatment and steroids, or start at least four weeks after beginning TB treatment to avoid TB iris. So go ahead and vote. 
and let's see what everybody thinks. Okay, so we have an interesting smattering of opinions. Uh, most people are not in favor of starting everything at once immediately, but uh, sort of evenly divided among the others. So um, we're gonna move to another question first before we go to the panel. And that is now that we have decided when to start antiretrovirals, we wanna know which antiretroviral should we begin? So he starts high dose steroids, he begins therapy with INH, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, pending confirmation of INH and rifampin sensitivity. And so what antiretrovirals would you start for this patient? So weigh in on this one. It's quite a laundry list. You're gonna be seeing quite a few laundry lists, I think, in these case discussions. Uh, so there's one Bictegravir option, three four Dolutegravir options, a Raltegravir option, uh, an option for uh, Darunavir boosted with Cobacistat, and then finally a Duravirine option. So let's see what people think. Okay, uh, people like Bictegravir and they like Dolutegravir twice a day. Uh, nobody went for Darunavir Kobe uh, and almost nobody went for Duravirine um, or Dolutegravir 3TC uh, or uh, Dolutegravir Bacavir 3TC. So, so let's, um, let's ask the panel what they think about this question. And I'm gonna ask Dr. Connie Benson to kick off our discussions. And then um, I'll ask the other panelists to just chime in uh, because I can't see your hands in, in the uh, screen here. So Connie, why don't you kick us off? Well, it's a great case. And so let me start off by saying uh, to our audience, it's pretty clear that tuberculosis in the United States is not a huge problem in most uh, regions. Although I'm from San Diego and people along the border with uh, Central, and Central America and Mexico certainly have uh, experienced an influx of migrants in their local communities. And many times that brings with us with it, the risk of tuberculosis among people with HIV. And certainly uh, TB hasn't disappeared completely from the rest of the country either. So this is a little bit of an unusual case coming from Atlanta and a young man. So you wanna understand where he might've acquired tuberculosis and presenting with a CD4 count of uh, in the twenties and a viral load over half a million he's in pretty serious condition for TB meningitis or TB itself. Um, so one of the new things in our guidelines is, is uh, some additional flexibility, I guess I would say, related to initiation of antiretroviral therapy. Um, previous guidelines and other published guidelines have suggested that treatment for TB meningitis be started immediately, of course, and that antiretroviral therapy wait until the control of the TB meningitis has been obtained. 
and in some cases have recommended that you wait at least eight weeks. Some complicating factors here are that the patient has a CD4 count of less than 50. So he's at high risk for both death from TB and at high risk for uh, activating other opportunistic infections, which will certainly complicate his clinical course. So there's probably an immediate need to get him on some kind of therapy to control his HIV. Um, obviously, you worry about TB iris and the consequences of that occurring in the central nervous system. But one perhaps mitigating factor here is that current recommendations for treatment of TB meningitis are that you start high-dose corticosteroids at the same time that you initiate antituberculous therapies. So the combination of both um, aggressive TB treatment and high-dose corticosteroids may actually mitigate the occurrence of TB-related iris or iris related to initiation of antiretroviral therapy. There have been no real clinical trials that have addressed that question, but it seems like it might make common sense since there is a randomized controlled trial for prevention of iris in the setting of uh, TB using corticosteroids. So I think it's reasonable to say that in a patient who's seriously ill like this gentleman, when to start antiretroviral therapy would be almost as soon as you can, but certainly within the first couple of weeks after you've gotten them on a stable dose of anti-TB therapy and gotten them onto high-dose corticosteroids. I don't know if anyone else wants to weigh in on the response to that question, but I'll turn it over to the rest of the panel. Yeah, anybody else have any other thoughts, particularly about the when to start issue? Chime in. No, I think you're right. Uh, the key thing is the steroids are right there. So uh, the concern originally about why late weight uh, is sort of taken off the table. Yeah, I mean, I, this is Carlos. I think the only thing I would add is, is that, you know, it is important to monitor this patient very closely and to watch them very carefully as they, you know, they could potentially develop iris and the steroids will help, of course. But, uh, the benefit of treatment far away the, the risk of, of waiting, as Dr. Benson said, particularly in somebody with a, you know, not only TB meningitis, but a CD4 count less than 50. Maybe Dr. Benson, okay. while you're on this topic, can you give us a sense of what you mean by the steroid dose? Uh, is, is it a 60 milligram prednisone type of dose? Yes, or than at that? least 60. Yes, it's a 60 milligram equivalent dose of prednisone, or if you're giving uh, uh Dex, if you're using dexamethasone, the equivalent of what would be 60 milligrams. And uh, so both of the questions about drugs here, I'm going to get to when we talk about what to start in this patient. So thank you for those, Dr. Wooten, and I'll cover those questions as we talk about what therapies to start. Fortunately, Melanie's left up the slide with the laundry list of different options, but um, Maybe I'll go through each of these. Um, the first option, uh, which was a third of our audience had chosen this one, and obviously it's a popular initial antiretroviral therapy regimen, but in this case, the patient's receiving rifampin. And uh, rifampin being uh, a strong inducer of the CYP3A4 system for metabolizing drugs, 
um, the current uh, guidance is not to use bictegravir. Bictegravir uh, does have a direct interaction at that level with rifampin and reduces bictegravir concentrations by about 80%. So while there are some suggestive data from very recent clinical trials that 80% of a bictegravir dose may still be above the uh, EC50 or EC94 uh, HIV, um, you may not want to take that chance in somebody who has a half a million uh, a cop copies per ml of HIV RNA. So bictegravir would not be a good choice. Um, dolutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC might be reasonable, although without knowing the um, HLA B27 status for this patient and whether the person might be at risk for an abacavir hypersensitivity reaction in this setting, you wouldn't want to complicate the picture of iris, TB meningitis, and other inflammatory conditions by using abacavir at this point. Um, my choice for this would have been choice E, dolutegravir 50 milligrams given twice daily. Dolutegravir also has a drug interaction with rifampin, but um, not so strong as, a, as with bictegravir. And by doubling the dose of dolutegravir using it twice daily, you can overcome the drug interactions with rifampin. And that's been studied in both in clinical trials and in observational studies. So this would be the reasonable choice. Dr. Wooten asks about um, concerns with TAF and rifampid, and that's also a very good question. Early on, when TAF first became available, there hadn't been much uh, published about the interaction with rifampin and TAF. And there was a suggestion that rifampin reduced TAF concentration substantially. So there was a caution about using TAF, but subsequently um, intracellular uh, levels of TAF are above the threshold that you would see even with tenofovir. So it's probably safe to use TAF. So dolutegravir twice daily and um, the whatever TAF combination and other nucleoside you want to use would be reasonable. So that is great. This is such a, a hard subject and, and the answers do change from time to time, but, uh, but uh, thank you so much for going over that in, in detail. And if there are more questions about that, we'll come back to that in the Q&A. But in the interest of time, uh, I want to move ahead to our next question. And that is, what if this had been cryptococcal meningitis? When would you start antiretrovirals in a patient with cryptococcal meningitis? Um, and here are some, uh, here is, oops, whoa, sorry. Uh, this is, there's no ARS for this, but we're just gonna go to the panel for some comments. And I think I'll ask Carlos to weigh in on this one. Carlos, you're muted. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I just unmuted. Sorry, sorry about that. Thank you, Melanie. Um, I think in, in cases of cryptococcal meningitis, you know, we have traditionally, again, been very concerned about initiating uh, therapy early because of the risk of, of increased intracranial pressure. But we have to remember that if you if you are in the, a lot of those studies come from uh, resource limited countries where there's limited ability to do the kind of monitoring, kind of regular LPs or 
or put a shunt or something else in patients. So if you have somebody with cryptococcal meningitis in, in the United States or another uh, resource uh, uh, country with has resources and you can do close monitoring and supportive care for adverse event, it is recommended that you start in antiretroviral therapy, you know, two to maximum four weeks after starting antifungal therapy. And, uh, and you know, you have to be monitoring the patient very carefully. You have to be following the, uh, the you know, the clinically very importantly to follow the patient at any sign of headache, increased cranial pressure, do an LP, be sure that you're not running into problems there. But, but that is the best, uh, the best course of, option, uh, of, 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 of therapy. There are patients, uh, again, that have not only cryptococcal meningitis, but we also see people that get screened for cryptococcal antigen and are found to have you know, asymptomatic cryptococcal antigenemia. And in those individuals uh, that we then go ahead and do a lumbar puncture and they have a normal LP, uh, the recommendation is that you start antiretroviral therapy immediately. There's no need to, to wait even to, you know, two to four weeks after starting antifungal therapy. So that would be my recommendation in somebody with cryptococcal meningitis today. But I would say that, you know, whenever I start a patient like this, I, I tend to be very careful and, and follow the patient very closely because there is, you know, the risk of having increase in cranial pressure is clearly there. Yeah, and Carlos- may have maybe one comment from the panel. Yeah, there are, there, a little late, Mike? Yeah, there is a study that's in sort of final review uh, that that uh, I've been a part of from the ARCCC. And basically out of 114 patients between the US and Europe who by chance, not by chance, but by choice, either received early within the first two weeks or later uh, ARV therapy in the in the case of cryptococcal meningitis, there was about a eight and a half percent mortality in the early group and about a 10.5 percent in the late group. So first off, the overall mortality in Europe and America and Australia are is generally much lower than what you see in sub-Saharan Africa, number one. And number two, the earlier treatment really doesn't seem to have the same um, outcomes uh, overall. So earlier treatment within the first two weeks is really uh, probably okay. Um, and, and, and so I think that's one of the reasons the panel went to a more um, liberal definition of that in the guidelines. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a change from previous recommendations. So that's one reason we wanted to highlight it today. So now let's move to uh, something different. Uh, Teresa is a 27-year-old artist and single Black woman. She presents today with a new HIV diagnosis made at a local CBO on World AIDS Day. Now, Teresa had been on long-acting cabotegravir prep for about six months, but she lost coverage through her parents' health insurance four months ago when she turned 27. She went to a health department clinic, but the provider told her she didn't need PrEP because she's a woman. So she gave up. So she comes to your clinic and she wants to be treated for HIV as soon as possible, like today. So what are her options? And here's another laundry list, a little shorter than the other one. Uh, please go ahead and vote. You have a Bictegravir option. You have three Dolutegravir options. You have a boosted Darunavir option. And then you have an option for long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine, direct to inject, since she has tolerated cabotegravir in the past. 
And the final option is uh, she should wait until her genotype came back, comes back uh, because of exposure to CAB and maybe she should come back in a week. Okay, let's see what people think. All right, so we have uh, Bictegravir fans, we have Darunavir Copacistat fans, uh, and a smattering of other uh, uh, opinions. So let's go to the panel. And uh, I think I'll ask Sandy if she will kick off with this. And then uh, I want to follow up with another question, and we'll ask Roger maybe to weigh in on this one. What if she had been on TDF-FTC prep instead of uh, cabotegravir? So we'll go back to the laundry list. And um, Sandy, what, what can you tell us about options for this patient? Yeah, thanks, Melanie. Um, so this is a, uh, it's a really good case. And unfortunately, one that um, we may be seeing uh, more of. Um, and I think that the question of being on this long-acting integrase inhibitor, cabotegravir, um, does pose a risk um, of potential integrase inhibitor resistance in this case. So unfortunately has new HIV. Um, and so the options uh, A through D include integrase inhibitors. And then um, of course F, again, uh, the long acting cabotegravir again. Um, and then uh, the last one is it, um, concern about waiting for a genotype to come back and to initiate treatment. Um, the, the choice we I would probably make in what we have discussed in this panel and are and recommended is uh, the Darunavir-based um, regimen. Uh, and the, the reason behind that is this long tail that we know persists with cabotegravir um, and in uh, recent pharmacokinetic data that was presented at CROI by Dr. Landovitz, who's on this panel referenced in uh, our guidelines, I think is reference 22, that there have been, um, there's data to support, especially from HPTN 083, that concentrations of cabotegravir can last upwards of two to four years. So there, there is a potential for integrase inhibitor resistance in this patient. So in that case, you know, yes, that one of the recommendations would be to get an integrase inhibitor genotype but in um, potentially resource limited settings where you're constrained and may not be able to obtain that or, or potentially the viral load is too low to amplify it to get um, levels back. Uh, you know, it, we wouldn't wanna wait for those to come back and, and in that setting, um, a boosted Darinavir-based regimen with a tenofovir or FTCF hemtricinamine-based um, regimen would be something we would recommend. Um, and I think um, it's just coming from not a lot of hard data, but given uh, that that potential, um, we wouldn't want to risk um, that. So that that would be my comment on that. Yeah, really important emerging issue uh, for all of us. Thank you, Sandy and Roger. What if uh, this uh, person had been on a tenofovir-based TAF, a tenofovir-based prep regimen uh, TAF or TDF? Yeah, thank you. Well, this is if this person was on TDF FTC or TAF FTC, life would be a little easier than with Sandy. So because uh, so we would recommend that person to take 
any of the regimens that are recommended for most, i.e. AACD, and we will recommend them to get resistance testing prior to start, but they need not wait for the results of the resistance testing before they initiate. The reasons are that selection of uh, TDF or TAF resistance uh, on TDF or TAF prep is unlikely. It is a lot more likely uh, if antitrust therapy was inadvertently continued uh, after the person was infected. And that uh, the studies in Africa, Nadia Vicent, suggest to us that even in the, the in that instance, it's likely that integrating HIPAA-based regimen plus TDF or TAF-based uh, regimen would work. Yeah, and uh, mainly there, yeah. there's more and more data regarding answer G that suggests, especially in early infection, we know this person was recently infected, that waiting really does uh, have some long-term consequences. So it's better just to move forward. Yeah, excellent point. All right, so maybe we'll come back to uh, some of these issues in the Q&A. Um, so our last case uh, in this session is a dual diagnosis of HIV and pregnancy. So Jeremy is a 24-year-old trans man who was diagnosed with HIV by his OBGYN during his first prenatal care visit at about 12 weeks gestation. Okay, so uh, he wants to begin treatment for HIV in order to protect the baby, has a good CD4 count, viral load 129,000, and serology is negative for hepatitis B and hepatitis C. So what regimen will you recommend for him? And here are some choices, beginning to look pretty familiar, aren't they? Uh, Bictegravir, uh, three dolutegravir regimens, a raltegravir regimen at 800 milligrams once daily, uh, boosted darunavir, and a duravirine-based uh, regimen. So uh, what does everybody think? Let's see, let's see your answers. Okay, uh, dolutegravir TAF-FTC is the big winner here. Uh, but there are a smattering of other answers and uh, no takers for Duravarine. So um, let's, uh, let's turn to the panel and I think we'll ask Davey to um, uh, kick this one off. Davey, what do you think? Yeah, thanks, Melanie. This was great. Um, I, I'm glad that everybody uh, understood about dolutegravir and pregnancy. There's been so much in the past about whether or not it causes neural tube defects. And, the scientific literature caught up and did some really good studies showing that uh, dolutegravir plus TAF and FTC works really well. And if you don't have TAF, then TDF also works well. I guess the big thing that I want people to really take home is that cobistat containing regimens uh, really should be avoided um, when pregnancy because it's um, just inadequate drug levels. And the other one is that if somebody is on a regimen that's stable, that's not dolutegravir based, um, but it seems that is acceptable, acceptable just to really watch it um, as they go through the pregnancy. So I'll stop there. Thanks. Maybe I'll just add um, that yeah, I, I think it's a belated recognition about the safety of these drugs. That is, we wish we had had these data before, and it actually um, really argues for doing these type of studies or, earlier in the course of drug development, since obviously these drugs are used in, in women and people of childbearing potential. Um, the two things I wanted to add, one is um, 
the SUPAMO data that really got the world's attention around the neural tube defaults as, as it's matured, as Dr. Smith said, really has shown no difference between neural tube defects in women who conceive and people who conceive while on dolutegravir versus people who conceive on non-dolutegravir. Um, there is also an even more recent study that we cite in the guidelines from the um, pediatric um, uh, HIV AIDS cohort study uh, and also the Swiss um, mother and child HIV cohort study. It actually shows that in the US and Europe, women or people who start um, dolutegravir had greater rates of viral suppression than people who started uh, raltegravir boosted atazanavir. Now that's not a randomized study, but nevertheless important data and the safety was, was quite good. Maybe the last thing I'll add to Dr. Smith's comment is um, two drug therapies is something we do sometimes do in um, people who are not pregnant, but for people who are pregnant, um, the data isn't quite there yet for dolutegravir 3TC in terms of um, it's used, so I would I would go ahead and avoid that one as well. So, yeah. And uh, any other comments about? Maybe the last thing I can say is a very important study that um, is called the uh, Impact Twenty Ten study is the reason why I think a lot of you chose and, and why I would choose TAF FTC dolutegravir in that study done in Sub-Saharan Africa predominantly. The people who um, received TAF-FTC dolutegravir, most of them were in their second trimester, actually did better in terms of uh, their own outcomes um, and also their infant outcomes were better. And, and that's really what we're looking for is uh, the person who's pregnant, better outcomes, and also the infant had better outcomes. So I, I, I think you were right on with the C, with the, yeah. um, the third choice. We have, a we have a question that just came in. It's really quite important, I think. And in this case, someone who is already on cabotegravir um, and they end up uh, getting pregnant while on that regimen. So do you just continue that or do you switch to dolutegravir? And then a follow-on would be if you have somebody on bictegravir regimen, do you continue that or switch? So uh, uh, I'm not sure who wants to take that, but... Uh, I, I wonder if Dr. Thompson might want to comment. I know she's yeah, talking about turn it back on the presenter. <laughs> would you, would you... What do, you, well, what do we do about the big tegravir and then maybe tegravir and cabinet? Yeah. yeah, so I, I'll take the big tegravir part, and maybe somebody else wants to uh, do the cabinuba part. But you know, big tegravir um, is not recommended to start during pregnancy because of a lack of data, basically. Uh, but the recommendations are that if somebody is on bictegravir, they're stable, um, they're tolerating it well, their viral load is suppressed, then if the patient wants to continue, um, they could continue that regimen. And the perinatal guidelines group recommends that you monitor viral load a little more closely in uh, those patients. Um, so uh, so there's the bictegravir part. Anybody want to chime in on the cabotegravir part? Think, I think cabotegravir one, Melanie, I think would be, there's absolutely no data. So this is why we, we need registries and what we need cohorts that, that are followed with individuals like this and know what to do. I personally, and I would love to hear what others have to say, I personally, if the person is, is virologically suppressed and doing well, I would follow this person closely with viral loads, but I would probably continue the regimen. I don't see any reason why you wouldn't, uh, but I would also offer the opportunity of switching to a dolutegravir-based regimen. And the person may say, no, I'm very comfortable with injections, so I can't do pills. And, you know, I'd rather have somebody suppressed on during pregnancy than somebody who's not suppressed because they couldn't adhere to an oral therapy. 
Yeah, I think that's important. And also to recognize that although we don't have data on cabotegravir, uh, this person has already been taking cabotegravir and it's going to be in their system anyway. So we can't actually eliminate the cabotegravir at this point. Um, right. I, I, think, yeah, I think one of the things it relates to answer B here as well, and that's the diotegravir 3TC alone. And that might be similar to diotegravir or cabotegravir with Ropivirine, it's not so much that we're worried that it doesn't work overall, but in pregnancy, sometimes, especially in the third trimester, drug levels can drop a little bit. So until we have more data, it might be more prudent to switch over to a three-drug regimen uh, to get uh, through the pregnancy. But this is, we need data. We're in a data-free zone. Uh, so that's just kind of a counterbalance. Uh, but you're right, the practical considerations really matter. And, you know, one thing I just want to bring up, there's an answer for raltegravir, 800 milligrams um, once a day. And that actually is not how you would dose uh, raltegravir in pregnancy. So you it, need to give twice a day at 400. And, and that's a case in point of the pharmacokinetics being a little different, especially in latter stages of pregnancy. So there was one earlier question about uh, if somebody has a negative cryptococcal antigen, does that take cryptococcal meningitis off the table? Um, so, a negative cryptococcal antigen in the blood? It, so, in other words, if somebody has, you, you screen for crypto, their cryptococcal antigen is negative. Um, it, does that mean there's, does that rule out uh, a cryptococcal meningitis or cryptococcal disease? As I say of the patient, it's asymptomatic, doesn't have a headache, doesn't have yeah. increase in intracranial pressure, doesn't have a fever. I would say, yes, I'll feel comfortable yeah. if they don't have cryptococcomanitis. Yeah. Now, if the person it, has a headache and, and you know, signs no, no, of no, no. Right. Pressure, a different story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, think, I think maybe what this was getting at is in the older days when we ran cryptococcal antigens, there could have been a prozone effect. And I think nowadays the way the test is done a yeah, prozone yeah. effect being where the antigen overwhelms the assay where it's so high uh, and you have to dilute it down. I think the assays now are sort of adjusting for that. And so a negative test pretty much does rule out any cryptococcal right. disease. And remember that in HIV patients, cryptococcal antigen and serum is usually sky high, well over one in 2048. So it's really, it's really something that's kind of obvious. Um, yeah. So I think you can rule it out in that setting. So we got well, one other question we didn't get to in yeah. the original discussion. There was a question about whether in treating TB, you could use rifabutin instead of rifampin and use once daily dolutegravir to make things easier for the patient. Um, I think uh, the person who asked the question knows that rifabutin has less of an inducing capability than rifampin does. And we'll often use that when we can't use rifampin. I think most people in the TB world would recommend using rifampin rather than rifabutin because there's so much more data on the activity of rifampin in treatment of TB, particularly um, TB meningitis. There's very little data on use of rifabutin for, for TB meningitis. and We don't know a lot about the PK and how much it gets into the central nervous system in the same way that we do about rifampin. So I probably would not do that in the setting of TB meningitis. There is a study looking at using once daily dolutegravir with uh, rifampin 
using a higher dose of dolutegravir, but given it once daily. And I think that clinical trial may provide some more information about using dolutegravir with rifampin. Great point. Can I throw out a question that uh, some people have asked and we didn't get to it in the discussion? Um, why is abacavir no longer recommended for initial therapy? That sort of disappeared from the recommendations this year. Why did we do that? I can start. Um, there, so, yeah, there's several reasons. Um, Carlos mentioned one of them. We're trying to start people earlier and earlier. And, and even in the best of health centers, you usually don't get an HLA-B57 back the same day. And so that's one consideration. But I think even beyond that, um, even though not all the studies have shown this, enough studies have shown a link between abacavir and cardiovascular disease that I think that there's not a, um, th th that's a lingering concern and one that mitigates against um, using abacavir. And then lastly, there's really no advantage of abacavir over some of the other drugs. For example, dolgitegavir 3TC can be used in many instances. Um, and so I think the cardiovascular risk, the need for an HLA-B57, which introduces complexities around uh, early starts, uh, the, and, and then, um, you know, those are the two main reasons. And then the lack of an advantage over the other regimens. That, that's why this year uh, we went away from a back here containing regimens. Yeah. And maybe I'll, I'll just wrap up with this uh, comment that I just responded to about typing is, well, wait a minute, we're talking about all these medicines. Isn't it important to focus on diet and and uh, healthy lifestyles? Of course, that that goes without saying, perhaps we just said it. Right. So that that is important, especially as people are aging, as the person who asked the question mentioned. And that'll come back up in the yes. metabolic section. I was going to say that might be a perfect segue. Most, yeah. I would say most important, stop smoking. Yeah, yeah exactly. Great. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so um, much, Dr. Sack. That's yeah. a perfect uh, yeah. segue <laughs> to my session. Yes, yes, exactly. I tend to talk about